Hello, my name is Declan Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Merry Christmas, everybody. I hope you've all had a, a wonderful festive period. We're now in the final week of, of 2016, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, I, I, try, I try and remain optimistic uh, at all points, and that the, as much as this year has been uh, very uh, socially and politically tumultuous for many people, um, there's also been a lot of good stuff. I'm not going to list them all here. <laughs> but the, the show, at least, I've really, lo- I've really loved doing the show. And I've got to speak to so many brilliant guests, and, and today's is is no exception. So continuing the the theme, so every every guest I've had on the show in December has made one of my favourite games of the year. Um, my guest today is Zach Gage, who who made really bad chess, which is a really fun, inventive, like super simple and also really clever, like all at once. It, it it's amazing, and and he's just he's a he's a brilliant designer. He's made a bunch of uh, great games and, and art pieces for phones. He made like Spell Tower. He made Tharsis, which is on PS4 and PC, I think. And and he's one of my favourite kind of people. He's someone who thinks very deeply and passionately about the things that they do you know there's real intent behind uh, his creations and it, it's very easy to view games i think as just like a disposable medium and just whatever so going to take my mind off things and they absolutely can be that but i think if nothing else the the, the devs i've spoken to on the show have, have shown just how much passion and, and emotion and, and thought has gone into every aspect of a game you know as as alex said uh, last week making games is a, is a crazy person's task um, but it's also some of the best people's task, and I just want to say like a, a massive thank you to everyone that's been on the show this year. You know, I've 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 spoken to so many amazing people, and I've got you know so many more coming up. You know, I'm very excited about the show, and thanks to you as well, very much for for listening. It's been a terrific year for the show. That you know, it's got more popular than ever. I've got some really good guests, um, and I'm always keen to to make it bigger so you know if, if you have a friend you think might be interested in it if you're if you're back home uh, for the holidays you know to tell an old friend if who's into games maybe they'd be into it and um, anything you can do to spread the word is is very much appreciated and if you want to get in touch it's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpoint show on twitter or it's checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding uh, and while you're on either of those sites please do uh, give the show a like or follow the show on on, on twitter it's all very much appreciated. If you really like the show, there's a Patreon page too, uh, patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the, the money and the inclination, um, give it to charity. It's Christmas, but maybe next year if you're feeling generous. And thanks to everybody that's already donated. It's, it's massively appreciated. And, uh, and it makes me feel very, very warm and fuzzy. Okay, that's the, that's, that's the end of 2016. It's been uh, it's been very interesting, but uh, I'll be back next week as always with a new show and a new guest. Is to the future. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, if I were to tell my sixteen-year-old self 
that they'd be like what how is that even possible this is amazing <laughs> think of the potential so i know yeah. i just you get really bored of it really quickly it's ridiculous <laughs> not bored of it that's the wrong word but just so used to it like so yeah. used to the technology yeah exactly um cool yeah so well let's do um let, let's do a, a formal introduction uh, for the sake of uh structure i suppose uh so zach welcome to the show thanks so much for for coming on if you don't mind would you introduce yourself sure uh yeah thanks for having me um I am Zach Gage. I am a New York City-based artist and game designer, and uh, that's it, I think. <laughs> that is it. I, I was told a friend that I was um, speaking to Zach Gage, and uh, they said, well, clearly that's a made-up name. Like that's, that's... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they probably said, who's Zach Gage? <laughs> well, no, they, they knew all the games, uh, but I mean, oh. this is this is one of the... One of the reasons why I wanted to do the show is because, you know, generally developers are kind of in the background, essentially. You don't think about the people who make the things that you play. Mm. Um, but also, yeah, it's a crazy, it's a crazy name. I'm, I think I'm allowed to say that because I have a pretty weird name. Probably a much weirder name, in fact. But it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's, it's, it does sound like some sort of 50s uh, cop in some pulp pulp uh, novel. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I've gotten that um, a lot. <laughs> I like it. Very Although much. actually, the weird thing—it's actually a little strange to um, to tell people your name when it doesn't have multiple syllables in it. I don't know. I think that's like the a, thing. I think that's why it's it sounds like some sort of like like Detective Gage. Phrase mm. <laughs> or uh, Charles Hammer. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's talk about some video games. So. Sure. If uh, if you can remember, um, actually no, let's talk about the games that you've done because you've made a bunch of, of really interesting games. Uh, is it mostly like all the the mobile stuff? So there's like Spell Tower, obviously, uh, and most recently there was Really Bad Chess and right. the Sage Solitaire. And, and has it always been kind of mobile stuff you've been centered on? Um. I think, well, so I've done a few non-mobile things. Uh, I did uh, Tharsis with Choice Provisions, which was on PS4 and PC. And I did a game called Guts of Glory that was a board game with uh, my friends Jesse Fuchs and Jess Warby. Um, And uh, I definitely, I mean, I've certainly also done a lot of uh, small card game designs. And even, you know, Sage Solitaire was was a card game. Um, But I think in general... I, I really am mostly interested in mobile uh, for, for two major reasons. So one of those reasons is that it's really the thing that everybody has. And I'm not particularly interested in making games that really specifically target gamers or use um, gamer list, uh, oh man, gamer history or literacy. Um, the, you know, I, I love that. I grew up playing games. I played tons and tons of stuff, but for me, the uh, the games that I'm interested in are, are really about designing games for everybody and trying to get um, people critically engaged with thought and uh, problem solving. Yeah. And so most of the games that I do are actually sort of like secret, weird, little art inspired projects where um, I'm trying to enjoy games and trying to get other people to enjoy games. But really what I'm trying to do is get people to uh, engage with the world in a in a more thoughtful more critical way and so when uh, you're looking at what per, what platform you would put something like that on 
uh, mobile is definitely the platform. Yeah. And, and then the second reason that I really like in a, um, using mobile is I just think mobile is one of those things that anyone can use. And the paradigms that we're used to on it are ones of immediacy. So if I make a card game, you tap the cards you want to use. And that makes sense. You don't have to use any weird third party peripheral. Yeah. You don't have to do anything that doesn't seem normal. Um, and so that is really kind of born fruit in terms of like really young people are able to play the games, really old people are people able to play the games, people who don't know how to use controllers are able to play the games. So you know, that's all the reasons why I really like mobile and tend to make games there. And the reason I sort of I wanted to kind of set the table of the kind of things you've done before we sort of started going back into like your history is because like I thought it was interesting when you when you introduced yourself you, you said you were an artist and a game maker and like on your on your website you talk about being somebody who's primarily just interested in in systems and mm -hmm. games is just one way of kind of um one way of sort of illustrating that interest and you know pursuing that interest it's not necessarily your your main focus yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing with me is that I, I feel like people have a um, a real shortage of understanding and in, in general, a kind of disrespect for long systems. I mean, I think in America, you see it right now with climate change um, or even just in like how fast things swing back and forth in terms of Republican presidents and then Democratic yeah. presidents and the Republican presidents. It's like once something is happening on a level that is so far removed from the next year of your life, it becomes something that's very difficult for anybody to understand. Um, and, uh, and that's really what games are. Games are these things that we engage with that we, that we can't understand. And that's what makes them fun is that we have to figure out how to understand them. Um, and that's kind of, uh, I think a tool that, that more people should be able to use and, and, even enjoy because there is something kind of magical about these things that that are complicated and obviously you know there is because it's something that's enthralled scientists and philosophers and, absolutely and for, for you know all of human history and and like this is going to sound like a really bad um segue but it isn't um a kind of running joke throughout the show um has been how much i love final fantasy 12 and why final fantasy 12 is not just the best Final Fantasy, I think it's one of the best games ever made. And it's largely based on, uh, I mean, I do love it genuinely, but the, uh, do you know Margaret Robertson? She used to be the editor of mm -hmm. Edge. She works in the Game Center now. Um, yes, she's wonderful. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I used to know Margaret quite well, actually. I've not seen her in many years. But she wrote an article for Offworld, the, the very first kind of boing boing um, gaming blog in its original incarnation about Final Fantasy XII. And the way she kind of expressed why she loved that game so much is because essentially it's the scientific method. Like that is that is that game in its purest form. It's it's building a system, see if it works. It doesn't. Okay, let's try it again. And you're essentially building beautiful machines and then watching them play out in this fantastical realm. Um, and and I, that that's like such a draw for games to me. I, I love the idea of games as 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 way as kind of allowing yourself the, the pleasure of learning in a, in a controlled environment if, if you see what i mean yeah wow i've never played final fantasy 12 at all and now i'm incredibly curious about it oh it's amazing it's the the gambit system it's wonderful there's a remake coming out sort of next year um the remastered version of it which i'm very excited about wow yeah i'll have to check it out i'm just, i just googled it now i don't think 
this was like right around when Final Fantasy became really confusing. Yeah, and I they mean, were it like, is the outlier. It is like it's the only game in the series that is like that. It's one of the only games like it, like ever, which is why I kind of I evangelize it so much. I think. Yeah, it looks super fascinating. I don't even think I realized it came out because there was that like online one, which I totally ignored. Yes. And then I lost track of the count of what number everything was. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Wow. Um, okay, well, we, we've, <laughs> we've established a baseline, so now we can, we can wander back. So, uh, Zach, if you can remember, what was your, your very first experience of a video game? I think it was... Pro- this is so lame, but I think it was Super Mario Brothers on the Nintendo um it was when i was growing up in park slope in brooklyn and i went over to uh this a new kid had moved down the block and it was the first person who was kind of my age who lived close enough that i could walk to them if uh, my mom stood out on the street and watched me walk down to their mom okay (laughs) so it was probably like you know half a block but uh, that's a, a whole new world when you're a kid being able to walk anywhere on your own at all um, and, uh, and he had a Nintendo and I'd never seen a Nintendo before. Um, and my mom didn't let me have video games. So I was like completely unaware that they existed. Uh, it's probably in kindergarten and he had, um, Mario brothers and duck hunt. And we played those. Um, it's insane how it ubiquitous w- super Mario yeah. Brothers was, especially in, in America. Like it just seems like everybody of a certain age had a copy or at least knew somebody had a copy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I, I think, I mean, I think Tetris also has a similar ubiquity mm-hmm. in the U.S. and um, from the Game Boy. I guess be, being a hardware pack-in is really a good business model. Absolutely, yeah. You don't get that so much. You don't get the kind of the the, the game and the console associated with it in, in quite the same way anymore. Yeah, I think the last one like that was really Halo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and did it? Did, did did you love it immediately? Yes. Yeah, I was totally totally blown away, and um, it uh, it really changed. I think or uh, codified the sort of path that I was taking immediately. So um, I played that, and I totally loved it. And shortly thereafter, my mom got us a Mac LC. Um, and so I started trying to find games on that and mostly, uh, she let me buy two games and she said I could have two video games ever, um, (laughs) that she would buy for me. And so I bought Prince of Persia and Lemmings and I absolutely loved both of them and I could not beat either one of them. Um, Those are two great games to get. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, uh, Lemmings, I think I got through the fun levels, but I was never even able to do like the second level on trick, tricky. And, um, Prince of Persia, I got pretty far, but the time limit got me. Um, and by that point I had started to discover, uh, kid picks, which was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with kid picks, but it's kind of one of the most brilliant. It could be incredibly dodgy, but I'm assuming it's absolutely fine. I've never thought about that. Uh, yeah, it's actually it's one of the best. Um, I don't know what it is like now, but when I was growing up, it was one of the best pieces of children's software I, I think I've ever seen. Um, it's a drawing program for kids, so it's got all the normal drawing tools, but it also has stamps that are these like sort of weird little at the time weird little eight bit things, and you could change the size of the stamps. Oh, amazing! And, so uh, make little every- sprites essentially. 
Yep. And everything made like weird little noises and there was like secrets. So there's like a, the way that you clear the screen is there's a dynamite that you drop on the screen and it makes this crazy pattern and then everything goes away. But if you like held shift when you drop the dynamite, then when you let go of shift, it would like freeze the screen with the crazy pattern on it and then you could keep drawing. So it was like a game and an art program all in one. And uh, with that, I basically just started drawing my own games and I called them games and thought they were games. And I'm sure they I'm sure a lot of people on the Internet would say that's not a game. <laughs> but, uh, but to me, they were games. And um, at that point, I was so obsessed that my mom was kind of like, you know what, if you uh, I'm not going to buy you any more games. But if you want to learn to make games, I'll buy you software that you could use to make games. And so I was like, yes. That's very conscientious and, of your, your mother. Yeah, like, what, what, did yeah. she, what did she do? I, I was... um, well, she is a math teacher, but she was also a painter. Okay, and cool. I think she uh, was basically, you know, she liked math and liked teaching people, but she really wished that she could have just kind of gone and, and been a painter. And yeah. um, I... My grandma, my grandpa, uh, my father were all artists. So um, her view throughout my whole childhood was uh, I, I'm not going to really, you know, I'll give you a small allowance and you can buy fun things with that. But um, if you ever want any tools to be creative, I'll, I'll buy you those. Um, and so she bought me this thing called Hyper Studio, which was sort of like a color version of HyperCard, like a rich text media version of HyperCard. And how old are you um, at this point? You must have been quite young. Yeah, I think probably, um, I don't know, maybe uh, eight or nine. That's crazy. Um, and so I started making like just little point and click adventures in this. And also I, and then later on when I was a little older, probably like 10, I got into something called Coco, which was an Apple education product before Jobs came back and cut everything. Um, and so Coco, which is not the same as Coco is now, which is like a weird API that Apple wrote. Um, but back then it was this, uh, grid-based rule-making tool where you could like um, make a little splat and then you could edit the splat to make it look like a character and then you could um, set some rules so you could be like if the grid space below my splat is empty move the thing one square down so then I suddenly it's like everything is physics and things fall um, and so you could do a bunch of stuff with that and I started making little games with that um, and that really became uh, kind of most of my childhood was just making these weird little games. And who played these games? Did you have friends that you would kind of uh, you know, set up a little arcade for your friends to come in and pay 20 <laughs> well, cents? Uh, I had a couple. I never did an arcade, but I did have some friends who uh, who would play them. In fact, one of my friends, um, I made a game called Escape from Pluto 2, uh, which was this uh, stupid game where you were a spaceman and you had to solve these weird little puzzles. On, was that it a was sequel like a, or a clever name? Uh, it was a sequel, okay. and it was a puzzle platformer. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess looking back, that was my only puzzle platformer. Well, that and, and the original. And, um, and that was bought by one of my friends in middle school, and it was my first video game sale ever. He bought and it, it was, from you. Yeah, I had a there was like some service that you could use online that would allow you to sort of sell shareware and only one person ever bought it. And, it was <laughs> and I think it was two dollars. So that was very exciting. Did he like it? Um, yeah, yeah, he did. We still uh, he still makes fun of me to this day about some of the sound <laughs> effects, which were all uh, recorded voice. Um, and uh, but yeah, and then I, you know, I had some other friends who were also kind of creative. And so we would get together and we would make games. And then, uh, you know, my friend would then play them and I would play his games. And um, it was, uh, it, you know, it was less sort of this commercial thing and more kind of like, a, 
you know, let's get together and, and as something to do, just be creative and, and collaborate and sort of make these things and show them to our parents. And did you ever get like frustrated that you could only make things and not like play stuff? Were you not like, oh, why can't uh, I just get this game and play this game? Well, see, uh, I discovered piracy and, okay, <laughs> and shareware re- relatively early on. So I, you know, actually, really, I discovered shareware. I, I guess I didn't discover piracy till I was like 14. And that's when there were really kind of like a few games actually coming out for the Mac. But yeah. there was such a vibrant shareware scene on the Macintosh um, in the mid 90s that I actually spent a lot of time just playing the free versions of games that existed. So most of my early gaming experience was like, crazy like playing like realms and um uh all the early spiderweb software games and sort of these big sprawling rpgs that would eventually tell you you couldn't play them anymore um <laughs> but, but i mean but, all that is valid research though if, if your your mum was like oh i thought you said, i said no games you can make games all this is this is research and to be fair it probably was like you know i'm sure there were things you got from those games that would kind of feed into the type of things you were making anyway yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, definitely looking back now, it's sort of, um, you know, amazing to have accidentally grown up in an indie game scene that, you know, I, I really wasn't playing any AAA games because that just that stuff just didn't exist for the Mac. And even when it did, I didn't have the funds to go get it. Yeah. Um, and so that was really great. But also um, she really like limited my computer time to sort of like half an hour a day. And so most of the time that I, I would really be creating this stuff was um, very briefly at home or at friends' houses when we could like actually sit down and sit for like an hour or two and just build stuff. Um, so, you know, even if I'd wanted to play games at, at that point, it was really a choice between um, being able to mess around and be creative and being able to to play things because I just was so limited and yeah. she had spending most of my time outside or with Legos. <laughs> and I think that, to be fair, like the younger you are, probably the more inclined you would be to be creative. I think I think the kind of the older people get, the more the more they're likely to just like, oh, just let me play a game. I can't because they've probably been working or you know raising a family or looking after a puppy or something. Like, right, oh, I, right, I just everybody. can't be bothered doing any any more things. Let right. me just relax it, for a bit. Yeah, I think when you're a kid, you're not playing video games to relax. No, you're, absolutely you're not. Like desperate to find something to do <laughs> to <laughs> occupy your energy. Um, and so, did yeah. you have like other friends that that would do that, or did your other friends just like play games? Um, I, I had a, I definitely had a couple friends. I think, um, in general, I'm, I, I was friends with people who wanted to do creative things. So my friend who, um, who I played Mario with, he was sort of my like real core gamer friend. And so we, we, you know, when I hung out with him, we really just played games and that's how I played, you know, all the super Nintendo RPGs and all the Nintendo RPGs. We just, you know, hang out every couple of days, every, every summer and play through a game or two together, um, which was really great. And then a lot of my other friends, we would do various things. So, you know, I had, I had a few friends who I made these, uh, games with, uh, on the computer I had some friends where we would sit down and, and draw pictures and try to make like a deck of of our own fake you know collectible cards of creatures that we'd invented um, I had a friend who was into video and so we would you know make these fake stories and news reports with our stuffed animals and we would like film them <laughs> um, that sounds and, yeah so I, I really I had like a lot of different creative 
outlets, I think, for all, for all these different things. And some of it was video games, and some of it, you know, was just other other stuff. But it was, the, I mean, it was a great childhood. Where did the card games come from? I'm assuming, like, was that Pokemon or Magic or? Uh, so it wasn't card games. It was just cards. It was. Uh, it was like, still like be a, trading cards, like you know. Like, yeah, exactly. Because okay. we would um, we would all collect like Marvel cards, and uh, I remember always loving the statistics on the back of the Marvel cards of like people's strength and and speed and all that stuff. And so we would sort of make up our own trading cards with our own universe of weird little creatures, and they would all have their own stats. And then we would like buy foil and draw them on top of foil so we can have like foil special oh, cards amazing all that stuff is that like i mean I, is top trumps do you know top trumps is that is that universal or is that just a british thing um we have tops in america maybe it's uh like it's just like term. you'll get like a pack of cars and then all the stats will be on the back and it's like okay i choose acceleration and then whoever's got the highest acceleration gets both cards Oh, no, that sounds great, though. That's such a simple little game. It's so game. simple, yeah. And, the, the, yeah. and you'll get top trumps for, for everything. There'll be, I mean, when I was a kid, it was always, like, cars and, you know, aircraft carriers and things like that. And now you can get, like, Harry Potter and like, oh, all kinds of various ones. that's so smart. I wish that had been in America. That's, like, so, the perfect size of a game for kids. Oh, yeah, and, and there's, there's a huge... Like, I still, if I see something that's particularly bizarre... Uh, a bizarre deck of top trumps i'll buy it just to see what stats they've decided to choose right for all yeah that, oh, that that's, universal. i'm totally shocked that that's only or at least that it's not in america yeah i mean i'm assuming it's it must have been european because i'm sure i got them on like school trips when i was a kid but maybe not but yeah no it's, it was a good game so like it's but, but it's really interesting because you had like this super creative childhood anyway and you were making games from such a young age like a lot of people i speak to particularly developers the kind of their their notion of becoming uh, somebody who made games didn't come until much much later because they'd never really thought about it. They just grown up playing games and loving games and not really knowing how they how they worked basically because the information was quite um, well pre internet. There was no way of getting the information in a lot of ways. But if for you you were growing up making games, so was it kind of always in your head that this would be something you'd like to do as you got older? Um, it was through high school. Uh, so I made a lot of games when I was in middle school and in high school. Um, I really lucked out and we actually had a computer science class in my public high school where they taught us C++. Oh, amazing. So I spent a bunch of, I spent a lot of time there and, uh, you know, we would like play Unreal Tournament against each other after school and sit in class and like make, um, I, I think I probably programmed, uh, like a brick breaker, um, game, like, 10 times like every every year i would go in and the first thing i would do is just program basically arkanoid in visual basic okay um just to just for fun just to see if i could do it um from scratch and so uh and then sort of towards the end of my high school career i had a friend who was kind of a programming genius and so i just sort of sat with him and we made stuff up and we made like a multiplayer version of pong where as many people as wanted could join in so you could have like a 32 player version of pong and it would just create like a um a shape where everybody had one wall of the shape and if the ball ever went through your wall then you would be knocked out and then Amazing. it would just be the rest of the people um but we never figured out what to do with two people because two lines is not enough lines for a shape <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had this super elegant game that totally fell apart um and so after that, uh, and at the same time, I, I also did a lot of art. So in high school, I was really into um, photography. 
Um, and so when I went to college, I tried to find a college in uh, Northeast US that had a really great art program and a really great computer science program. And so I ended up going to Skidmore College in upstate New York. And when I got there, it turned out they didn't have a really good computer science program. And actually, I was way advanced over um, where their computer science program was at. And it was so boring to me that I just totally dropped out of it and ended up concentrating on art. Um, and so my college career, I basically forgot about video games and just became really obsessed with art and did all the, you know, figure drawing and sculpture. And did you not even play at all? Um, I played. I had like a... Um, a modded Xbox in my dorm room, and so I played, you know, what was going on on the Xbox at the time, which was uh, a lot of good stuff, like um, Knights of the Old Republic and Halo 2 and stuff like that. And so I would play a lot of Halo with my friends. And um, but did the, you uh, like? Did you? What I'm curious about is because you, you, you know, you, you come from this kind of strong artistic background, and I imagine like purely through the influence of your family, you would have developed, you know, quite a a keen eye you know quite a, a critical capacity for you know understanding various types of art like did games feel like trashy to you or did you were you in any way kind of a video game evangelist because like i remember particularly around that kind of time like early early kind of 3d like early playstation 2 and xbox there seemed to be this explosion of kind of creativity and it seemed like anything was possible in games it was all these amazing you know, like the classic examples like Res and Ico, obviously, but just in general, the the broadness seems to be, you know, the the horizon seems to broaden essentially. Like, did you feel that? And, and were you that invested in them, or were they just like a fun distraction? So I definitely felt some of that. Like, I would say the first, or I guess technically the second Prince of Persia 3D game, Prince of Persia: Sands of Time, oh, was so good, pretty amazing. And so when that came out, I was like really. Um, just astonished but largely uh i didn't have a ps2 and i wasn't friends with anyone who had a ps2 in college and so i think i missed a lot of the really great sort of art experimental games um in fact i didn't really play res until a couple of years ago um and same with shadow of the colossus and all that stuff so it was stuff that i read about and kind of imagined which really has been a large part of my history with video games because when you grow up with a Macintosh and you go into <laughs> video game stores, you're just looking at boxes and imagining how great all these things are. And, you know, I used to buy like PC gamer, even though I could never play any of the games. Um, and I think that was kind of my experience in college too. So I, you know, I saw some of the stuff, but, uh, and, and I talked about the video games, you know, certainly I was critical, uh, of them, you know, when Halo 2 came out or Halo 3, we would talk about sort of the features of them and like why this gun is interesting or like what they're doing, but but not on not on a super deep game designery level, just on kind of a game fan level. Um, and uh, at, you know, really all of my attention at that point was just focusing on on art and thinking about sort of like stuff from art history and like the writings of of, of artists who I loved, like I kind of got into reading um, a little bit of like Paul Clay's journals and a little bit of um, like a lot of Solowitz writing um, and just studying that stuff and, and really thinking a lot about art. And I think that's where I kind of built up a lot of um, the conceptual stuff that I still work with today in art. And like from that, like I'm really interested in that because, you know, I mean, that's obviously that's what university is for. It's to kind of, you know, broaden and, 
you know solidify thoughts and things did did the experience of doing that like how i mean obviously it will have affected you know how you appreciate and understand games and how you make games but like is there specific things that you feel like you learned in that period that have given you some sort of like unique insights or you know some new way of looking at something i mean i think the big thing if you know if i was gonna try to classify what where I'm coming from with games. It's just, I, th I think there's a lot of, I find when I talk to people who make games, usually the most interesting part about them is kind of what they're bringing to games. And there are a lot of people who love games and make games because they love games. Um, and some of those people make really amazing video games. Like I think uh, JW from Blambeer is the perfect example of yeah. this. Like JW loves video games and he's a total genius and he knows how to like, make make games that are new and interesting and, and play with all of these old conventions. Um, but for me, it was, you know, I always enjoyed video games. It was something that I liked. But really, the thing that I love is art and, and concept and talking. And so I think for me, um, the my impetus for making games is always about trying to communicate a concept or an experience or, or a way to look at something. And so, um, you know, I think... I'm not sure there was like a specific insight that I had during that period, but I do think the just being in an environment where, uh, you know, I could go into a classroom and people could have a thoughtful critique of the, of the ideas behind, um, a painting or the, the, the experience of learning how to do figure drawing, which is an insane experience that has all sorts of weird side effects that I never would have expected, like um, not being physically fit enough to do figure drawing for three hours um, because the the canvas is so big. And so like I would walk out of class and my arms would just be hurting. Um, like just crazy stuff that you would never expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and also coming across, you know, teachers who who seemed really great and ended up being very full of themselves and seeing what that looks like and um, and, and paying attention to artists who were successful and then um, became older and stopped doing what they were doing or changed what they were doing. And just thinking about all of those things and having those conversations and kind of like finding a, a place in the the art discourse, uh, you know, I think I think that stuff really helped and and changed um, has has a huge impact on the kind of games I do now because that's where I come from, you know. Yeah, so you, you're kind of. I'm assuming that you, you may have an idea for like a, a concept or something you'd like to explore, and it, you wouldn't initially sort of you wouldn't leap to say let's make a game about that. You'd probably go through various like what's the best way of exploring that, and then right. eventually come to like okay, well a game would probably be the best way of doing that, so let's try that. Yeah. And I mean, usually how I work is I, I'm just very, um, I th so one thing actually that I started doing towards the end of college that, that has really carried through, um, with a lot of my work is just this idea that, uh, I think a, a big part for me of the world is growing up with the internet. And so, you know, obviously there are millions of people who grew up with the internet, but I do think it's something that's very, very specific to the generation that I was in. And, Absolutely. um, the idea of like, I remember when I was in middle school and they opened up AOL instant messenger to everybody. And so everybody who wasn't on AOL could suddenly get on. And so like, um, like everybody making up the rules for like, if you talk to a girl on instant messenger, did that count? 
you know, <laughs> was that the same as talking to someone in the real life? And I think like going through the experience of like growing up in an internet that was also growing up that didn't have any rules um, was really interesting. And it, and it sort of taught me a lot about the fickleness of the world around you because there were rules in the real world that you would never question and then there were rules on the internet that everybody questioned and everybody decided and and oftentimes those rules didn't sync up and so that that experience really got me thinking a lot about how the world works and what kind of questions we can ask and and how to interrogate the world and oftentimes i i find looking at experiences we have on the internet and trying to compare them to what we have in the real world is a really good way to sort of bring up a lot of this stuff. And so um, when I was in college, I, I ended up, uh, oh man, now I don't even know where I was going with this. Um, but but that was that was something that like I ended up thinking about a lot and I spent, it a, spent a lot of time interrogating how the actual, oh, now I remember. <laughs> I spent a lot of time interrogating sort of how the actual world works. And I think one thing that it really solidified in me is this attention to experiences. And so when I have a, um, an experience that doesn't seem fully normal, it's something that I try very hard to pick up on and think about. And so I, I kind of go out of my way to have strange or uncomfortable experiences. And, and if I do find myself in an experience that's weird, I'll sort of stop and think about it. And a lot of times that's where the inspiration for my work comes from. Oh, um, super interesting. This, this idea of trying to share with others. So um, an example is, uh, so when I was 10, my dad died and it was a really obviously a huge moment in my Absolutely. life and it changed, changed a lot of things. And so um, a few years ago, uh, when I was in graduate school doing art stuff, I had this strange experience where I was Googling around on the Internet. And for some reason, I was just struck by this idea that, like, what, you know, I should Google my dad and see if there's anything out there. And, you know, there's not going to be anything out there because when I was 10, the Internet barely existed. Um, and it was just very strange to, like, Google a human being and not have anything show up for them when I'm operating in a world where, you know, Google is the way that we find people and find information and, and do all of this stuff. And so I spent a lot of time trying to think about, like, how do I translate this experience into something that other people can have? Because this is this is a very weird sensation and it's not something that I fully understand. And so, you know, if I share it with other people, maybe they'll have some insights into into what's happening here or maybe they'll find it interesting in a different way. And so the art project I ended up building out of it was a small box that basically has a little essay on it and um, Google's people. So I, I started thinking about this idea of like if, you know, there's a Jewish idea that you're not actually gone until nobody says your name anymore. Right. And so if people are still saying your name, you're, you're kind of still alive in some way. Um, and so I thought about, you know, if, if search is the way that we're using our memory these days, then maybe you're still around if, if people are Googling you. And so I built this little box that you can write me an email and I'll add you to the list for this box. And what it does is it um, picks someone from the list every hour and it just Googles them and then it clicks some links and then, and then it um, erases its little memory and then it picks somebody else and it Googles them. So the idea is if you have this little robot that's Googling you and, and trying to find information at, about you um, and you die and everybody you know dies, but there's this little robot that's still looking for you, is that something that's comforting to you or is it not comforting or you know, how does it make you feel? And so that was the idea of sort of asking those questions 
as a way to to share this experience. Um, and I think what oh sorry <laughs> no no I was just I was just going to say that 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 is amazing. That's such a beautiful idea. Oh thank you. Well so I, I mean and I think. But what happens make... to the boxer? That's what I was really thinking. Because <laughs> yeah I mean eventually you need to keep that I'm... safe somewhere. Right. Yeah, it's sitting on my wall now, blinking at me. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, and I mean, I, and I think I hold that when I make games too. Is when I'm, you know, when I make games, what I'm often searching for is um, a, a weird combination of rules that that gets me to a place where things are interesting and the experience is interesting and it feels like something that I'm unfamiliar with. And um, when I find that, then it becomes, you know, then playtesting becomes. How do I share this experience with other people? Um, how do I, you know, when they play my game and they respond to it, are they reaching the point that I want them to? Are they finding and having? Oh, sorry, I don't know if you can pick up the sirens. Yeah, no, um, that's okay. Um, Unless you know, there's they... like an emergency in your building, in which case you should probably go. But... <laughs> no, they're just driving <laughs> by. Um, but yeah, so it's like, you know, how, are they having that experience, and and how do I get them there? Um, and that's, you know, in general, the way that I try to push this sort of critical thought is, you know, a lot of the times the experiences that I'm trying to translate in a video game are these interesting questions or these difficult, um, you know, kind of places to find yourself where you have to make decisions and, and think about what those decisions mean. And so when I uh, make games, I'm trying to sort of figure out how to put people in that position that I was in when I found that and, and found it enjoyable. That is, that is fascinating. That's probably... Um, one of the more sort of unique uh, approaches to, to, to like designing at least and there's there's almost too much for me to unpack in, in all of that in, in one go so I'm going to move away from it and <laughs> <laughs> now I'll come back we'll come we'll come back to it we'll, we'll circle back around but sure. um, I want to do like a couple of just like quick fire simple questions as, as quick fire as you like really I mean it doesn't have to be um, so Zach if you uh, if you had to play a game with the devil for your your immortal soul. Um, what game are you best at? <laughs> uh, well, if I could choose any version of me from any time in my life, okay. I would play Unreal Tournament, the original Unreal Tournament. Um, I used to be a real monster at that game. Nowadays... I don't know. I don't know that I'm good enough at any game to. to, to I mean, gamble. when was the last time you you gave Unreal Tournament a go? Maybe maybe those skills are still there. <laughs> I I have a serious doubt that my um, mouse reflexes have held up after all these years. I was, um, I, I was talking to someone this the other day. Actually, I don't think I've played like a mouse and keyboard shooter for over a decade now, which is insane. Yeah, so I totally stopped actually until I've been playing Rainbow Six Siege, which with a bunch of my friends mm -hmm. online. And I eventually switched back to a mouse and keyboard, and it's been really fun. But, oh, I would play Ultimate Frisbee. Does that count? <laughs> Could it be a sport? Um, I mean, I only know about Ultimate Frisbee um, from American movies. Like, I don't... What makes the Frisbee ultimate? <laughs> well, I think uh, what makes it ultimate is a bunch of stoned people coming up with the rules. Okay. <laughs> but but uh, but it's, it's sort of like football, I think. Um, I mean, it's a team sport, so I don't know how I would play that with the devil. That sounds very complicated, but but basically, you I'd know, like it's. To see uh, it, <laughs> I would, yeah, it sounds good. Um, it's a, uh, it's like you can't move when you're when you have the frisbee, and so you have to throw it to other people, and so you're kind of moving a formation up the field, and if the frisbee gets stolen or touches the ground, it's a turnover. So okay, it's, okay. it's pretty straightforward. 
Um, um, but I played a lot of frisbee in college, so I, I'm pr- I'm pretty good at throwing. <laughs> are you are you competitive? Do you, are you do you get competitive playing games? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not. I th- you know there are different levels of competitive. I think there are um, people who are so competitive that they don't mind losing games. Um, I know I, I, talking to people in like the fighting game community, there are people who are just so focused on winning that um, they'll pick a game and even if they lose it 200 times, they'll keep playing it because when they play someone who's that much better than them, all they want to do is uh, learn those skills and win. And I, I'm not that level of competitive. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of the fun, relaxed competitive. So if I play a game, I want to win it, but uh, I also want to have fun. And so hopefully it should be a, an interesting, you know, I'm not going to play a game that I'm going to lose all the time. And I'm also not going to play a game that I'm going to win all the time because yeah. that's no fun either. I think competitiveness is is underrated. I think it's really good, especially when it comes to games. Like the, there's nothing worse than playing a game with somebody who's just like, oh, it's a bit of fun. So, well, it is, but, you know, you, you need a bit of uh, you need a bit of competitiveness to make it interesting. Yeah, I think um, I can't recall the exact quote but i'm pretty sure it was uh frank lance who pointed it out to me but there's a there's like a level of um there was some basketball player who was talking about sort of this idea that like you know you can be a pro basketball player but to really have an amazing game it requires playing against another pro basketball player that you reach highs that that you can never reach um by yourself you know competition in, in a team sport or, or in a competitive you know you can't it's tough to be competitive with without another person at least in a, in a multiplayer thing and so um part of it is is trying to beat the other person but part of it is also sort of um the the creation of this space that that can only happen when two people are truly amazing absolutely and, and pushing each other to do stuff that's beyond anything that you know anyone else can do or that they've done before and the, the kind of the, the negative flip side of that then, um, if you're prone to such things, what was your, your worst rage quit? <laughs> uh, I definitely rage quit Rocket League a few times. Um, but I, t- oh, you know what? <laughs> Probably my worst. Um, so I tend to not tilt. I'm a pretty laid back uh, person and a pretty laid back video gamer. So okay. The idea of like, I, I don't think I ever had a, you know, uh, uh, I can't even fathom the idea of like throwing a controller across the room in anger or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but I definitely did have a tilt in, um, I have a couple friends in New York and we've played the Game of Thrones board game like four or five times. Okay. Um, and I definitely had like a political tilt uh, a couple of years ago where I was backstabbed by somebody who I really trusted and uh we still talk about it to this day and and it kind of i actually really enjoyed having that moment because um once you've done that in a political game you want to feel like you'll never do that again but it almost certainly you will but what i find really enjoyable is like once you've had that experience in a political game when you see other people having that experience it's really enjoyable because it's sort of like (laughs) this special crazy you know game circle moment where they're just so filled with with rage about this thing that like ultimately doesn't matter and they'll find that it doesn't matter and everybody will laugh about it afterwards <laughs> um well on, on that subject then um because i i feel like it's one of the rarest genres of game if you can call it that um what games have really made you laugh oh man 
That, let me think about it. Um, I'm really enjoying the new Pokemon, actually. Uh, it's really charming, and I've and I've laughed a couple times. Um, I saw that gif I'll, with the, the the fish. I don't know what the name of the fish is, and it's 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 absurdly erotic. <laughs> where you rub the fish and it just closes its eyes in ecstasy and kind of opens its mouth. It's really uncomfortable. I, I haven't seen that yet, but I did. But I did have um my uh my polypo. I think I'm pronouncing that right. That was my starter Pokemon, and I was in a battle, and it was like polypo wants to be pet, and I was like, okay, after the battle, I'll go to aftercare or whatever and pet it. And so I went there, and it, there was like no Pokemon there, and then it poked its head in from the side of the screen playfully. Uh, and I didn't expect that, and that was pretty That's delightful. Um, I also uh, under um, Undertale. Undertale, right? yeah, no, I know Undertale. Yeah. Um, so that game made me laugh a lot. I thought um, some of the spoiler alerts. Um, did you? So did you play through it? I haven't finished it, but I have played it. Okay. Well, I don't know if I should spoil this for you. Um, I know it's fine. I, I, it's okay. There's lots of games. Okay. I, mean, I may never get around to it. So uh, there's a really great joke in Undertale where at the very beginning, one of the doofy characters, um, I think it's, I think it's uh, the, the skeleton character. Wow, I'm sure everybody who likes Undertale is like, oh my god, this guy's yeah. a moron. Uh, but uh, the 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 main skeleton character. I did just say fish Pokemon, so it's fine. <laughs> Fair both, enough. Both into it together. Uh, the skinny, tall skeleton okay. in Undertale um, tr- tries to make you do this puzzle early on, where there's like all these different colored squares, and he goes through the rules really, really fast. Where he's like, "This square will do this, and this square will do this, and this square will do this," um, and you're just like, "Oh my god, how am I going to deal with this?" And then the whole thing falls apart, and you don't actually have to do it. Um, and then at near the very end of the game, there's a sinister robot, and it actually makes you do the exact puzzle. And if you don't remember all the rules from the beginning of the game, it's like a weird nightmare. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was just a brilliant joke. Um, so good yeah and so and i thought there was a lot of stuff like that so that would be those would be the games that made me laugh i guess it's weird that like that there's like from all the the various people i've spoken to and asked this question to there there does seem to be a kind of a weird pattern where there's either like multiplayer games where something ridiculous happened kind of in irl and not in the game and that, that was very funny or it's just clever writing like undertale or well not undertale like like um like you know, Tim Schafer games or the Portal games or something, and then there's this this last one which is Undertale fits into, which is like this kind of um, callback jokes. Like it's, for some reason, games that do callbacks tend to just be hilarious because they're just it's just not something you expect in a video game. Earthworm Jim is is the classic one where you launch mm. the KO and then the KO ends up killing the guy at the end. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, oh my god, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, yeah, I think um, one of so one of my friends in quick aside, one of my friends uh, in New York is this guy um, Rob Dubbin, who writes for Colbert. Okay, and uh, so we talk a lot about games. He has a lot of really great thoughts on writing and games, and so he kind of turned me on to all these different ways that humor is written in games, and just the idea of you know I never really thought about what it takes to write jokes or or do humor, and so I think the thing that has really been interesting to me in um in more recent years is 
stuff just like thinking about the format of humor and so callback jokes are like an interesting format that i haven't really seen a lot of and i think that's part of why i responded to it um and then the other thing that i've really been thinking about a lot is just like twitter humor and twitter comedians and this idea of like jokes that like i thought the ted cruz zodiac killer joke yeah was this amazing joke because that kind of joke has never existed before and could never exist yeah. Um, before Twitter, like Twitter enabled this sort of weird mass, you know, it wasn't a meme, but it kind of was a meme. Um, and I'm just like totally fascinated by, by that, that, that thing existing. It just seems so strange. I had a really, um, a really interesting chat actually yesterday with, um, AP Thompson. I'm sure, I'm sure you know, know him. It's all the New York games people. Um, and, and we, we chatted about this exact same topic because I asked everybody about the, the funny games and, he had some really good sort of insights into how how the the game design itself can be used to make jokes at the player's expense almost like just messing with expectations he used a brilliant oh, example yeah. of like zelda lost dungeons you'll have to listen to the episode but it's it it, it really kind of broadened my um broaden like how i think about comedy and games because i like when i started doing this the, that question was just because i was like i can't think of any funny games there's i mean there's very very few like actual laugh out loud yes. funny games but there is like i think there's a, a big kind of untapped potential in various ways that like as you said with the the ted cruz joke on twitter like how games can uniquely do something funny you know not necessarily yeah, the writing or anything yeah, I'll definitely listen to that episode, and that makes sense that Alec would have thoughts on that because Biglitched is very clever and funny. Absolutely, yeah, of course it is. Um, okay, so we'll cycle back around then. So, how, like, what kind of prompted you to sort of dive back into games then, since you had been out? Like, was there a specific game or event that made you like sort of pulled you back in? Sure. Uh, well, I so I was. Um, so after college, I moved to New York and sort of for my senior show, and this is maybe a little longer of an answer than you're looking for, but it's fine. Um, for my senior show in college, I ended up uh, exploring a lot of conceptual stuff and a lot of um, uh, anim- like computer animation. So um, like procedural animation, animation through code, um, because when I was in high school, that was sort of the golden age of flash internet experiments. Yeah. And so my friends and I would look at all these like crazy internet experiments from like, you know, Joshua Davis and the like. And um, when I was in college, when I was trying to come up with my senior show, I was sort of looking around for what to do. And I thought, oh, I remember that stuff. And, and now I feel well-versed in art and I have this background in programming. So I wonder if I could use the two together in some way. And so I started doing a lot of generative prints and a lot of uh, interactive stuff and i came to new york and started to explore um, that scene in new york which was actually very strong and there was a guy named zach lieberman who made a thing called open frameworks which was kind of like an artist framework for c plus plus okay um, and so i spent a lot of time uh talking with him and i interned with him and i worked uh, i uh, worked with this guy, Amit Pitaru, who is this amazing code artist who I had seen some of his work when I was growing up. Um, and so I was doing a lot of interactive art stuff. And um, during that time, I made a thing called Synth Pond, which was, in, which was a sound toy where um, the idea was, I really love music, but I'm not a note person. I don't mm-hmm. really understand how to do notes. Um, 
but I do understand visual spatial space. And so I was uh, building the sound tool where it was like a composition tool, but all of the ways that you would interact were spatial. And so where you place the notes in this space would determine um, not just sort of what I've totally sound played that. Making. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, thanks. Um, but also like, you know, uh, how, how soon they played after each other and, and everything. And so I had made it on the computer and I put it up on my website and kind of no one downloaded it. Um, and then the iPhone came out and the app store came out and I was just so smitten by the device that I was like, you know, I bet I could put this on the iPhone. Um, and I bet I could come up with some weird interaction scheme for how it would work. And so I had a real blast doing that. And I put it out and uh, all these people bought it and I made a bunch of money and then they wrote me emails and thanked me for making it. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this amazing platform where I can do art and people will pay me for it and thank me? Like, <laughs> that's like so weird. So I decided that I was just going to start doing a lot of art on the iPhone. And, that was super um, early on, though, right? Like, I remember that being one of the first kind of apps I remember playing. Yeah, I think it was within the first year of the App Store. Um, and I remember it was like all, nobody knew there were no iPhone websites. It got covered on MacRumors.com, which is not even something they do. They don't cover iPhone apps. But I guess at the time there were just so few that, that, that yeah. they did. Um, and so um, so I, I started working on those and uh, I ended up making a game for my uh, then girlfriend, now wife. Um, and I wanted to make her a game for the phone, like a weird little thing. And so I bought her an iPod touch so that she'd be able to play the game and be able to play the art, um, things that I was making, um, for her birthday. And so she had that and, uh, she actually, I was exploring some of the games on the app store, like Ellis. Uh, I remember I was really amazed about, and I was playing, you know, Rolando and all those things, but she ended up downloading Tetris because that was the only game that she knew. And Tetris on the iPhone, at least originally, was just so terrible. Oh, because, it was, yeah, I remember how bad it was. Yeah, because <laughs> it was designed, you know, Tetris is a button game. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty important that it's a button game because you hit those buttons really fast. And so I saw her playing Tetris and I was like, this is doing well. This is terrible. I can make a better game than Tetris. I just came up with this weird interaction scheme for, for my sound toy. I could probably come up with one for a game. And so I made a game called Unify, which was my imagining of like what it would be like if you tried to design Tetris for a touch phone as a native game. Um, and that... Uh, and, and at the same time that I made that, I was working through my MFA and I made a game called Lose Lose, which was um, more of an art piece than a game. It was like a Space Invaders style game where every file on your computer was connected to an alien in the game. And so if you killed any aliens in the game, it would randomly delete whatever file they were connected to that you were unaware of. Um, and the, the, the whole idea with that piece was that it was, um, and it, it told you all of this. It wasn't like secret, yeah. um, but, but the idea was that that was kind of the foundation piece for my MFA, which was talking about how, you know, we're living inside the digital space in ways that we're not, um, really respecting like at that time and i think still somewhat today people really treated computers similarly to the way they treat calculators yeah and not close to how we treat you know real stuff that we care about in our lives like photo albums and um and i think people still don't really you know a lot of the problems that we end up 
facing in the virtual world are because we're so invested in this space, but we pretend like we're not invested, that everything that happens on the internet is not real. Um, and so the idea with, with Lose Lose was that I was going to make a game that like you could not argue that it wasn't real because it would make you so infuriated just hearing about it that you'd have to reckon with the idea of why you were so upset about somebody maybe deleting some of your files. That's so interesting. Through a, through a game. Um, and so I had made this game Lose Lose and this game Unify and somebody uh, at Parsons where I was was like, you know, you should go to Indicate. It's coming up. Um, I had some games teachers there. Uh, it might have been Colleen Macklin or Nick Fortuno. I don't know which one of them. And I was like, you know what, if there's a cheap ticket, I'll go. Um, and I looked online. It was like three days away. And I got a $250 ticket to get there. And I was like, well, this is a sign. I'll go. And I you go sound to Indicate. so laid back about the whole thing. Like, was there a point where you were like, oh, this is what I do now? Or were you <laughs> well, just like, oh, until, this is just for fun? Not until a, a few years ago <laughs> did I really, you know. But uh, so I went to Indicate and I met like Brandon Boyer and Steph Therion, who did Ellis and um, Brenda Romero and Richard Lamartian. And like, and it was just wild because there were all these people that I like had, you know, I'd been reading Offworld and it was just like I never expected that i'd meet these people and then on top of that they had all heard of lose lose and they had all heard of unify and i was just like what is happening where am i um and it was just such an amazing experience to get to meet all these incredibly talented people who were like interested in the work i was doing and were doing work that i was inspired by and so i came back just really excited to make make games and i kind of kept doing that that's really that's that's so cool it was actually fun enough it was it was richard who like he was on a guest on this like way back at the start. He's one of the early guests on the show, and and he um, was telling me about Sage Solitaire because I think that had just come out, and that, that was oh. sort of the, the <laughs> what, one of the what first a nice games. Guy. Oh, he's lovely. He's lovely. Um, but yeah, he was raving about that at the time. Um, yeah, so like, did you feel? I don't know. Like going to Indicate and meeting all these people, and you know, I, I can totally see how exciting that is, and you, you're getting. As you said on the app store, you're getting paid and you're getting thanked. You know, this is this is wonderful. But this was there because this is around the time of like the the kind of maybe even a couple of years after the kind of big indie game resurgence. So outside of the the phone, were you kind of did you feel like there was this kind of groundswell of much more creative and and personal um, video games? I mean, I think looking back, that's that's pretty obvious. At the time, I was just so stunned that this community existed at all that I don't yeah. think it felt like a swell. It was more like I discovered something that I was completely unaware existed. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, like, so did, was, did that kind of pass you by then until that that is until you started doing things yourself, essentially? Yeah, I mean, well, I was just completely. I mean, I was reading Offworld, so I had a sense that there were some interesting games out there, but yeah. I had no idea that there were so so many people and and so many talented people doing all of this stuff, um, and and that they were from everywhere. You know, that was one of the really cool things about going to Indiecade was just discovering that like there were all these amazingly talented people and they were all in games because even though there was no money they just really cared about what they were doing and suddenly now there was starting to be money so that was cool but it didn't feel like an arc until the bubble started to pop um, <laughs> and now looking back I can really it was it feels like a, a more um, like a more a demarcated time in my life like I, I you know I can look back and say oh this is this is when you know I got to see a scene go from almost nothing to a full-blown 
you know, public thing where people knew what indie gamers are. I got yeah. to watch a lot of my friends go from having no money to being unfathomably wealthy. Um, and I got to see sort of how everybody dealt with that and, and how the scene dealt with that and, and what's happening. And, and I, I think that was just, you know, looking back on that, I think almost more than being able to be a part of that, I really value being able to to, to see that experience and, and have that experience. And I feel like that's, I, w- I was very lucky to get to, to see and, and, and experience all of that and, and see what it does and what, yeah. what people are like and, and just what, you know, a real revolutionary technology can, can do for a space. I feel so bad for like new devs now, looking, looking at that, like someone listening to this now who may have done like the exact same thing as you and just you're never going to, because you know you you can't have that kind of impact necessarily anymore um unless they yeah. do, unless there's like you know wait for the the new tech to do, do a vr game or an ar game or something i mean yeah i definitely feel like i was tremendously lucky to be on the edge of of that wave like to to get to surf that wave i mean no I, 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 i'm not trying but, not to take away from from the clear no, no, talent no. And, and skill and effort you put into it but i'm just like someone could do the exact same thing now and still not not reach that level yeah i think that's definitely true i mean for sure um there there were so many lucky um components and it is kind of amazing to to have um to have the world like validate an interest that I have, you know, I could have been interested in anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I happened to be interested in something that suddenly everybody else was really interested in. Um, but I also, you know, part of what's been really fascinating about it is being able to see everybody like, you know, I feel like you grow up in school and people say, you know, history was written by the winners. And I got to see that, right? Like I got to be a part of seeing what that looks like and also what the mythologizing looks like. Um, and I do think, you know, in, in as much that I got really lucky and, and was able to build a career out of this, there are so many talented people who were working during that time that didn't. Yeah. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I always remember um, really strongly was uh, and, and, and even the mythologizing was happening at the time. Like I remember, um, I, I was working really hard to make iPhone games and try and make them accessible and try and build stuff for people that weren't just me and try and understand what, you know, other people would find interesting. Um, and I, when I made spell tower, I really feel like at the time I was like, man, I really think I got this, you know, looking back, it's like, there are definitely things I could have done better in spell tower, yeah. but at the time, I was like, I really feel like I made a broad and accessible game that's interesting, and I think people are going to like it. And did you and do uh, that, though? I don't mean to cut in, but did you do that specifically? Because I was going to ask that. Like, once you have this kind of early um, amount of success, did you then kind of think, rather than necessarily going from a concept, did you think, right, maybe I should just try and make something that people will like, you know, like just try and do something, not not necessarily commercial, but just purposefully set out to make a, a game that people will enjoy? Well, I mean, I'm always interested in making games that people will enjoy. That's, you know, oh, my that, thing. Yeah, like, no, if, you, if you look at... You know what I mean? I, think, I just mean, like, yeah. not necessarily born from a, a concept. 
Well, so, but the, the weird thing is it's like, I want to have big conversations with people. I want to make games where I say something, right? Not that I say something where, where I put forth an idea or an experience that I think is interesting and valuable and have as many people as possible be able to share that experience. And so with Spell Tower, that was, I had this experience where I was at the very first NYU practice conference and I had made Spell Tower and I thought it was working pretty well. And um, I showed it to a guy who wrote for The New Yorker. And so he was a, a writer. He liked word games. This should have been right up his alley. And I put him in one mode and it was too easy. And I put him in another mode and it was too hard. And I sat back and I was super disappointed that he didn't like the game. And I spent a lot of time thinking like, okay, clearly the way that I'm teaching this game is totally wrong. And I need to rethink how everything in this game works. Um, and that was when I changed it from being um, primarily puzzle mode with a bunch of difficulties to having tower mode first and then putting you into puzzle mode if you wanted to. Um, because what tower mode in spell tower is, is this like sneaky real tutorial where you've already learned the rules of the game, but tower mode is teaching you the strategy of the game. So the core thing in spell tower is this idea of like, if I spell a word here, that'll eliminate some tiles, new tiles will drop down and that'll enable me to spell a larger word. Yeah. And so how do you teach someone that, right? You could make a specific tutorial level where you do that, or you could put them in a free playground where there's no restriction and there's no real reward and people can end it when they say they're done and let them find out for themselves. And once they find that out, then put them in the hard mode and then they'll have all the skills where they're ready to actually explore that stuff. Um, and it worked really well in Spell Tower. That's and I amazing. think it was the biggest secret of why Spell Tower was successful beyond, you know, I, I think it's a good design, but I think no, it's good that... Game. That part of it was like a real a real awakening for me. And so I had put that out and I thought about, uh, you know, I thought it was going to do really well and I got a lot of coverage, but Apple didn't really feature it and it wasn't really making the sales. And I remember um, going to my friend Andy Nealon, who's in New York uh, and still is in New York. I don't know why I said was. In New York. <laughs> uh, so I went to my friend Andy Nealon, who was one of the guys behind Osmos, who I had met also at that first Indicate. And Osmos had, you know, been doing block blockbuster sales made tons of money and I and I was complaining to him and I was like I just you know I don't understand why this is so hard I I'm doing all of this stuff I thought I would be able to make money on this and and I just it's not nothing's making money I don't know what to do and he looked at me and he goes Zach nobody's making any money how many people do you know who make money off indie games and I sat about it I thought about it I sat down I thought about it and I, like I think at the time it was maybe like four people or five people and it was confusing because I was in this world where all of these people were like working really hard and, and some of them were, were finding a living but most of the people you know in that first wave were um, part-time they were doing other jobs and, the, and in their spare time they were they were hobbyists or they were doing contract work and they were hobbyists yeah um, and that really stuck with me because like it was just a like I had bought into the myth even though no one had told me the myth, I was just experiencing all this excitement. Um, and then when Spell Tower did eventually do well, I really uh, valued it in a different way because I was like, oh my God, I am so lucky that this happened and I tried really hard and, and this worked out and and, um, and now I'm starting to understand sort of like what, what it takes to make this work. Yeah, um, no, it's crazy. Yeah, and so and so to like kind of get back to, your, to, to, to the original point is like, yeah, I, I definitely, I'm 
the luckiest person in the world that I get to do, you know, make my art and games for a living. And then I got to be a part of this insane scene. But I, I, I think one of the most interesting parts about it to me is just looking back and recognizing sort of how those myths got built and, and what those myths look like. And but like did that kind of the process of of realizing that and kind of you know going through that that kind of like oh why isn't it selling or maybe it shouldn't sell or now it is selling like that that seems fraught with anxiety like anyone I mean most of my my friends kind of uh, well a lot of my friends work in various creative industries and that sort of sense of of volatility is is really stressful it's one of the reasons why like I was very reluctant to start this show because video games were one of the only things that I that I loved that I hadn't kind of tried in some fashion like I'd been in bands and I'd done magic and I'd made movies and and any the process of kind of making something completely changes your relationship with it but games were still kind of a my thing where I didn't I had no interest or, or you know um thought to actually make anything to do with games they were just that was my my artistic refuge I suppose I could just relax into that um like do you are you as excited about games as you were when you're younger now like now that you've you know made a few i think i think i'm hmm. i think i'm less excited about the games that are out there um only because it's a, it is a little bit more of a technical exercise for me. You know, when I look yeah. at, I, I play a lot of games that I don't totally love just to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And like games as a conceptual framework, I'm more interested and more excited about now than I ever have been. I think, um, I, I love them. I think about them all the time. Uh, I, I think, they're really powerful in ways that we can't begin to understand and maybe not as powerful as we think they are in ways that um, that we think we understand. <laughs> so it's just a really exciting, you know, as much as the wave has somewhat crashed, in, in other ways, I think there's never been a more exciting time to be a part of games. I think VR is getting to explore um, stuff in games that, has never been touched at all. Yep. Um, mobile is finding, you know, I mean, there are still new users showing up on mobile every day and um, more uh, older people are starting to get in on mobile and the third world is starting to get in on mobile. I mean, there's just, it's a very, I don't know. It's still, it's <laughs> as much as it, it's like, um, it's like if you're in a room that has like 15 people in it, it's pretty fun when the room goes from 15 people to a hundred people yeah. and you're like, Oh, what, a, what an amazing time. But like now the room has like a hundred million people in it and sure, you know, that's really crowded, but also there's things that can happen when you have a hundred million people in a room that can never happen. That yeah. could never have happened before then. And I think the, the, the recent example that I would go to um, is I thought Pokemon go was amazing. Um, I, I think Pokemon Go is not as much fun now as it was because they ruined it and took out some mechanics that were really important. But like, 
you know, being friends with Frank Lance and like Kevin Kansian and and Eric Zimmerman, like I, I know people who were working on big games and games that were played on the streets and, and Doug Wilson and Max Temkin, you know, I like I've seen these games that were played on the streets before. Um, and the thing about making a game in the real world is that like ultimately your play field is the size of the real world. And so you need a lot of players to have yeah. that game feel lived in. And Pokemon Go did it. Like I, I had experiences playing Pokemon Go where I went out on the street and um, and I was going uh, towards a corner because I saw a Pikachu there and someone looked at me and went, hey, man, there's a Pikachu on that corner. And I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> That's what I was going for. And like that, I've never had an experience like that before. Like I've never had a stranger on the street give me directions to a thing that only existed in my phone. Yeah, right? that and amazing. That's, a, that's amazing. Like, and that's a really special thing. And so as excited and, and, and amazed as, as I have been with games and what games have done, I, I really think they're going to do things that are, that are way more exciting than, than we can imagine. Um, and so it's really, I don't know, it's really fun. I'm really excited about the possibility. You know, I don't want to play another uh, <laughs> puzzle platform or, or, or uh, Call of Duty game, but, but, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of amazing stuff still waiting to be discovered. Can you imagine Call of Duty Go? Just people <laughs> just running for their lives, staying in streets. I, I hope be... I don't have to imagine no, that. No, that'd be, in that'd be horrific. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, well, that seems that seems like an appropriate place to, to finish up. But if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention, then uh, please take the opportunity now. Oh, man, I don't know. This was a really fun conversation. I'm, oh, I'm sure. glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Is that, actually, no, I tell you what we need to talk about is uh, very briefly, maybe talk about really bad chess, because I think that's, again, such a brilliant and simple and devious idea. And also, I'm really curious as to like where, where you, how you got to that concept, considering how, how deeply you, you think about these things. Oh, thanks. Um, well, uh, I mean, the core of it really was that chess is a game that has always frustrated me um, yeah. because if you are a person who loves games, chess is unavoidable. Chess is like the original strategy tactics game. Um, and when you're a kid and you look at chess, it sounds so awesome because it's like, well, especially if you grow up with not that many board games, yeah. because it's like, or not that many video games, because it's, it's this amazing game where you have all these pieces and they have cool powers and there's a narrative and like you're a kingdom and the other side's a kingdom and you're fighting for power. It's like, it's amazing. Like, you know, as elegant as Go is, <laughs> it, it does not have the, the raw, like Americanized appeal of, of kingdoms going to war um not that chess is an american game but no. like to the american audience there's it's like got a, miniatures it's got yeah little... yeah right it's got <laughs> mini <laughs> totally um and so uh it's a game that i always wanted to love and i've tried it a couple of times over the years and i've never made it through a game um and then about a year ago two of my friends started learning chess and they had a really good time. And so I was talking to them about it, you know, a couple months ago. And uh, my friend was like, yeah, you should just start learning and it won't take you that long to figure it out. Um, and I just couldn't fathom how that would even be possible. And so 
I was really frustrated in this conversation with him. And then I thought, you know what? This is like stupid. I'm, I'm a game designer. Maybe there's something I can do here. Um, and I started thinking about what I was frustrated with with chess. And it turns out that what I was frustrated with is something that I've been frustrated with in many games. Um, and I've done games that were designed specifically to deal with this. Uh, and that is um, what I call like a skill band. So chess is a game that has a narrow skill band, which means chess is good if you're playing somebody who is basically your skill. Okay. Um, and then, so my, my favorite game is poker, and poker is a game with a wide skill band, like maybe one of the widest skill bands of any game I've ever played. And so w what I like to think about poker is, poker is a game that like you and I could play poker with like two other people for 40 years every month, and at the end of 40 years, somebody who's never played poker before in their life could sit down at the table and win. And yet, over the 40 years that we're playing poker, we're having a great time and we're coming up with strategies and we're getting better at poker. And so that to me is like, that's the widest possible skill band you can have. It's a super deep game, but a total beginner can win. Probably that total beginner cannot win multiple times in a row, yeah. but oftentimes the person who, the beginner comes to poker and they get beginner's luck and part of that is no one understands them and part of that is they get lucky cards and they win. And so I was thinking about, you know, how that applies to, to chess and, and is there anything I can do um, to, to chess? And also maybe is there anything I can do that would sort of make this point that like maybe these unbelievably rigorous, elegant games are not as much fun as we think they are. Maybe there's something that, that will make you know, beyond the rules of a game that makes games fun. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, you know, what if what if I just make all the pieces random, you know, and then, you know, someone could have 10 queens and whatever. Then the guy on the other side is just going to maybe they'll lose and they just know they're going to lose, but they're going to try and take as many queens as possible. Um, and I started thinking about that a lot. And then I thought, yeah, I could probably do that. And so I waited for somebody to make um make a little asset for the unity asset store because i didn't want to program chess and so <laughs> someone eventually did when i bought it it was 25 dollars, and uh and it happened that their asset had an ai in it and i was like huh i wonder if this ai would be able to play against me in this totally like crazy version of chess and so in like 10 minutes, I had it running and, uh, and it could. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. I'm playing chess and I'm playing chess against an AI. And like, not only that, but like when I win, I feel like I'm a genius. <laughs> and so that at that point, I was like, okay, this is pretty good. And this is something that I need to figure out how to put out there. And so from, from then, it was just like, how do I, you know, how do I structure it? What are the modes that are going to be yeah. good and, and, and give a lot of people what, what they'd be interested in the game. But it was, it was really kind of like a, a found game in that way. And yeah. I think actually all of my best games are ones that, you know, within the first 10 minutes of trying the concept out, there's something that really grabbed me. And I thought, whoa, I don't understand that. Or that makes me feel amazing. Or, you know, and then and then I try to back off from that and sort of figure out how to get other people to that point. That That is super nice because that, like, that kind of feeds back into what you were saying about kind of still being so excited because you know, like I worry about this a lot um and it's a stupid thing to worry about it's it's a it's a absurd first world problem but but because of the way i've grown up with games you know games have essentially grown up with me you know and so mm -hmm. for most of my life i can i can say i i played all of the 
most important games, if you want to put it that way, like the the canon of video games, right. up until maybe like five or six years ago. And now there's just so many games. I have no idea. Like the best game I've ever played may just vanish, and I'll never even know it existed because there's just so much released all the time. <laughs> but it's so exciting to think that an idea like that, which is just such a simple and clever and really kind of attention grabbing idea, can just pop pop into your mind and then really quickly be prototyped and released. And uh, you know, clearly people gravitate towards it to the idea at least. Yeah, I mean, I was, I have to be honest, I was totally shocked that and that, that it made the splash it did. I thought, you know, who, who makes a chess game? <laughs> and, and, and who wants to play chess? You know, it's like a chess game that like pros at chess, you know, might not be into because I'm tearing apart chess and people yeah. who don't really play chess, like very hard to market to people who don't really play chess and go, but here's a new chess game. Uh, and it's completely different, even though it looks exactly the same. Um, that's, but it's really exciting. But it did work. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. And it kind of, I don't know, it, it made me feel, I think the more games I release and the more press I start doing, the more I feel like validated in this idea that I wish artists did more work to explain what they were going for. Yeah. Um, because I, I do, I feel like I have like a, I'm, I feel like I'm cheating in the press to some extent in that, like, I think it is very easy to, to be somebody else and release that chess game and, and not explain all of that stuff and just say, here's a new chess game. I really liked it. I hope you like it. And I think really bad chess more maybe than any of my other games would have been hurt by a release like that. But I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that somebody who didn't have that thought process would have made that game you know that they almost go hand in hand especially with really bad chess like the the sort of the backstory to the game is almost as important to the game itself if you know what i mean yeah well it could be it could be but i mean i do think i think a really i think a really good example to take a like a contemporary example would be um if you look at what michael bro has been writing about uh, Imbroglio. Um, he is so much, he is thinking about mechanics on a level of depth and complexity that, that I cannot even like, it's too complicated for me. <laughs> I guess like I can't work on something that takes that long. Um, and, uh, and his articles that he's written about it have been amazing. And it makes me think that, I wish on his earlier games he had written stuff like that. And I know he's like been fairly prolific with writing, but I yeah. I don't think, you know, in Brolio he's written like like a 9 to 10 um, essay set basically on like all of the different aspects of the game. Um, and that's really exciting. And I think um, there are a lot of game designers who I, I would love to have that level of, of, of information from. Also, uh, another example is like um, Derek Yu's book on Spelunky. Yes. Is I think that might be the best game design primer I've ever seen, um, and it's so exciting to me that I think we're getting to that point. You know, I, I remember early on when I was getting into games, there was this large drive from academia to find vocabulary because everybody was like, "We're all doing this game design stuff, and yet we're all really bad at talking about it. There's no vocabulary. It's impossible to have conversations about systems." And, and the more that we move forward, 
the more I start to think maybe finding that vocabulary was was a, was like kind of a red herring and that what we really what, what we don't need is is a perfect shared vocabulary what we need is like a broader base of people who are who who just are interested in games and have thought about games like maybe we just need more people who've put the thought in because once those people are there then these people who are designing games and thinking deeply have an audience for this information absolutely and i mean i was, I was talk about it i was just thinking that when you were talking about the really bad chess and the you know how the narrative was as important as the game equally someone could have just released that game without really putting the thought into it and just thinking oh maybe i'll just do chess with random things that'd be funny and then someone else though could could give it that that meaning and give it that that backstory separately because they're just somebody who thinks deeply about games yeah yeah and, and i don't know i just you know of things to be excited about i do think the the discourse around games has has also grown um, and Absolutely. it's become a lot less dry. You know, that some of the, that dry discourse is good. You know, some of the formalist thought on games is good. Um, the the MDA paper is is a good paper. Eric Zimmerman's textbook on games is a good textbook. But is it better than Derek Yee's book on Spelunky? You know, if I had to hand somebody who who's just getting into games um, one thing to learn. You know, is it better for them to learn a bunch of terminology or is it better for them to go through the the deep thoughts and 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 world of somebody who built one of the best video games ever made? I think pretty inarguable, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Spelunky is the book. Well, um, hopefully uh, these shows will will give a little bit more insight to people. Um, thanks so much for, for chatting again, Zach. That was that was amazing. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It, it's been a, an honor and it's amazing to, I, I love, you know, as with competition, um, having a conversation requires two people. And so it's a, it's a real joy to get to talk to somebody who's so thoughtful and smart. And oh, well, I'm just going to play that back on the loop whenever I'm feeling <laughs> down, Zach. Um, thanks very much. Though. That, that was great. I think um, 